didn't realize well, that's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about I think you need to come over, stand in my to shoes. Agree to disagree. Hey, Julie here. Thanks for tuning in. We've got another bonus episode of Top of Mind for you today. As you may know by now, we used to be a daily radio show. Seven years we did that. So we've got a lot of great material just hanging out in our archives, waiting to fascinate and inform you. To give you just a taste, today we have a conversation that first aired last year, and it remains one of the most thought-provoking I have ever had on this show. It's about how we talk about racism in America. Then we've got a short, inspiring chat with a doctor who collects flower arrangements from weddings, after the weddings are over, of course, and delivers those flowers to patients in the hospital where she works. So enjoy this bonus episode from the Top of Mind archive today. And we'll be back next Monday with an all-new episode of Top of Mind. Did your parents ever sit you down for a talk about racism? If you're white, probably not. My parents didn't. Neither did Brandon Kylie's. But most kids of color grow up talking about racism with their families. The first time they have the talk with their parents, they might only be five or six years old. Brendan Kylie, who is an award-winning author of books for kids, was an adult by the time he knew the talk even existed. A lot of white Americans learned about it for the very first time when George Floyd's murder sparked tough conversations about racism. So now Kylie's written a book to keep that conversation going for white teens, their teachers, and their parents. It's called The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege. And Brendan Kylie joins me now. Thanks for taking time. Welcome. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. What is the gist of the talk for a family of color? What What's the purpose of talking about racism? Um, I appreciated how you uh, set this up in the opening there because uh, the talk is certainly familiar to so many families of color, um, Black families, Indigenous families, um, and and you know I, I I certainly it's not my place to to sort of speak it word for word, but I but having heard about it from so many of my friends of color, um, and and now I think also fairly popularized uh, um, in in so much media. Um, uh, even uh, recently, the movie "The Hate You Give" has a scene in which uh, the main character Star's family is sitting down to have this talk. Um, and essentially, I think one way to to think about it, or as I've heard it, um, is it's an evolving conversation that's that's uh, where where parents are speaking to their kids about how to navigate and frankly survive racism in America, um, which is why I was interested in trying to write the other talk, because um, while that talk is absolutely necessary in for families of color. Um, and while growing up as a white kid in Massachusetts, my family spoke about racism, but we always spoke about it as 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 if it was about other people. We always spoke about it as if it was a story in which there were other characters and I had no role to play other than, oh, Brendan, you know, is, don't be racist. That's a terrible thing. And I think for white kids and for white families, we need to have that kind of more specific talk. We need to be very specific about our racial identity in the same way that families of color are. You start the book with two parallel stories of boys of similar age, teenage boys. One is black, one is white. They're in different towns, roughly the same time, roughly the same age. And and I'd love to have you tell us that story, if you would, those two stories. Sure. And I, 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 I can't uh, I can't retell it word for word in the same way that I do in the in, in the book. And um, but I, I, I hope that uh, <laughs> I hope the way that I, I share the story with you now, it, it, it gets at um, kind of the heart and the feeling because the speed and the, and the pace with which I tell these stories is important, but also, again, not to minimize what, what happens. And so I, mm. I, I frame it that way because of what happens next. Um, I set, I set out uh, the stories of Kid A and Kid B, and Kid A is a, a, a black boy um, in Florida and uh, is going to uh, the, the convenience store uh, affiliated with a gas station with his friends. Um, 
and and Kid B is uh, is, is is a white kid in, in Massachusetts, and um, and is going to the corner store uh, on a, on his way to school. And essentially, these two kids are the same age. Essentially, these two kids are two kids who both love music, and they're both listening to music as they approach the convenience stores. And uh, uh, for the for the boy in uh, in Florida. When he and his friends pull up to the convenience store in, in, in their car, uh, another car pulls up beside them. And there's uh, an interaction between uh, the white man in that car and those black boys, and um, things become to get, start getting heated. Um, mirroring that back in Massachusetts, the young white boy uh, walks into the convenience store. He goes to the back refrigerator, he opens the door grabs a bottle of strawberry Nesquik, sticks it in the inside pocket of his jacket, zips up his coat and walks out the door without thinking twice about having just stolen something from the convenience store because he likes to give this bottle to a girl he has a crush on. Um, back at the store in, uh, in Florida, uh, the language is getting really heated between uh, the white man and the, and the black boys. Um, and uh, one of the black boys has gone into the convenience store. Um, and by the time he is coming back out, the argument is getting so heated that the white man pulls a gun um, and, uh, and begins firing at, at the black boys in the car. They pull away, uh, get into another parking lot. And by the time they, uh, they, they stop to figure out what the heck is going on, one of the boys in the back has been shot and killed. Um, I I set this up in the way that I do it in the book. I I don't explain the children's races at the beginning of the storytelling because I want to outline a kind of mirrored experience for the for the two kids um, in a way that shows how similar they are in so many ways. They just you know two kids are just going to the store and they 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 love their music and um, and yet one of them is treated as if he is a quote unquote thug. Um, in fact, that's a word that the, that the white man who ended up firing on the black boys even said. Um, and the other, the, the, the white boy who's going into the convenience store is, is actually a thief. He's, he's, some people might call him the thug, in fact, but he's never called that. Mm-hmm. And what I reveal is that these, these are true stories. These are not hypothetical situations. The black boy in Florida is Jordan Davis. Many people may be familiar with the case um, and the murder trial of, of Jordan Davis. Um, and, uh, and the white kid in Massachusetts is me, I'm the thief. Mm -hmm. And I set the story like that in the beginning to say, I, uh, I used to tell stories like this and talk about things that I used to get away with, but now I want to tell the stories of my life, um, more truthfully and begin to talk about how being black and being white in these two situations, um, were incredibly influential. Our racial identities had, uh, you know, uh, enormous impact on the outcomes of what happened to us in those two situations. Um, and, and, and that's why um, so many families of color have the talk. There's a short documentary about, um, about Jordan Davis and his life. And his father, in fact, talks about um, how often he, he tried to give his, his son the talk about surviving and navigating racism. Um, and yet, no matter how much he tried, his son still his son still found himself in a situation where he was unable to even defend himself against um, the brutality of somebody not being able to see his own humanity. So in hindsight, you got away with it. Um, you survived as a thief in part because of the color of your skin. That's right. Nobody I, I share stories in the in the book over and over again about um, about one of the ways that I think about what white privilege is, right? The, the subtitle of the book is uh, Reckoning with Our White Privilege. And I think a lot of white people trip over that phrase, white privilege. People in, in my family, uh, friends of mine, um, people I know who are, who are struggling economically uh, really kind of choke <laughs> on, the, on the word privilege. And, and I understand I, that makes sense in, in so many ways. Um, it's a, it's, it's kind of a tough phrase to, to hear if you, if you feel like you're not doing well, uh, economically, but, but the idea behind the phrase doesn't have to do with economics. And, and, and here's why it's related to what you were just suggesting about that anecdote. Um, 
as I share in the book, the number of times I, I walk into a hotel or I walk into a bank or I walk into a convenience store or I walk into a school or a bookstore, et cetera, et cetera. The um, immediate assumption from the clerks, the authority members there, uh, whoever might be in the store and particularly the white people who are in the store or the institution or building or what have you, um, assume that I belong there. And that assumption that I belong there, in fact, operates like an invitation. Um, I have other stories I can share that, that bring this to light more, but I, I, I want your listeners to, to sort of reckon with that notion as a privilege, whereas someone like Jordan Davis is not granted that same invitation in the same way. Instead, he's seen with suspicion. And I, and I think this is partly the, the, the truth that so many folks of color, black folks, indigenous folks have been uh, sharing uh, publicly for so long um, that they don't, they, they experience reality in a way in which they see uh, white people looking at them suspiciously and they're not granted the same kind of dignity and compassion as quickly as I am time and time and time again. Mm. That's why Ralph Ellison wrote Invisible Man. When did you start to see this I mean, you call it like a like two Americas. It's 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 like we're mm-hmm. living in alternate universes sometimes. Right. White white people and people who are not white. When did that? When when did you start to um, see that other America? Right, and it's a it's a phrase I use in the book in in reference to a speech that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave in 1968 at Gross Point High School, and it, I think maybe to to help answer the question, I want to kind of give a uh, an example from the book, a, a story that 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 really brings to life what I was just talking about in that you know my last answer. Um, it, certainly, it's been an evolution, a, a, a dawning understanding of these two Americas over over time. But it but it was strikingly apparent to me um, in 2014 when I was traveling the country um, side by side. Uh, with another author. There were two authors. Um, uh, uh, one author is Jason Reynolds. He's a black man from Washington, D.C. And the other one is, is, is me, Brendan Kiley, white man from Boston. And, um, and we're traveling the country because we both had published our first novels. And we're excited. You know, we're, so, we're living out our dreams here. This is amazing stuff, right? But um, uh, no matter where we were going, uh, Jason and I, uh, time and time again, were really experiencing uh, these two different Americas. When we went through airport security, the number of times that Jason was patted down and, and officers had their hands up in his uh, in his dreadlocks, um, and I, you know, never got searched or stopped. Uh, the number of times I could witness with my own two eyes the suspicion on people's faces when he worked walked in first to the school we were going to visit and and where we were going to speak, or uh, walking up to the hotel desk. It was it was a it, I, I hate to put it in this way because it, 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 it seems to minimize um, in some ways, but it was remarkable for me to witness the look in predominantly white people's eyes when Jason walked in the door before me versus when I walked in the door before him and the immediate invitation and the assumption that I belonged there and the immediate suspicion that he did not belong there. A, a, a very clear case of this is when he and I walked into a bank in Washington, D.C. Um, he's the client at the bank. And um, as we uh, walk up to the, uh, you know, to the to the teller, Jason's there to, to do a transaction. And the, the teller says, oh, you know, for a transaction like that, I have to go get my manager. Excuse me one moment. Um, she goes back to the back office. The manager comes out. He's a white man like me. He comes out into the lobby. He strolls right past Jason, sticks his hand out to me, and he says, how can I help you, sir? Uh, he assumed it was me. He assumed I belonged there. And, and these may seem like small moments or interactions, mm-hmm. but if they're happening all day, every day, this is what I think we can begin to think about when we think about white privilege, because it's, it's those kinds of subtle acts of racism that when sort of um, when you pull the camera back into, and look at it mac- on a macro level, you can begin to see where some of the real systemic problems happen. You can begin to understand why housing um, is still so segregated in, in the United States. You can begin to see why 
um, so many Latinx people are, um, are are suspicious and hesitant to um, to try to uh, get access to healthcare in the same way that uh, that many white people have because they have felt discriminated against in so many of their interactions in our healthcare system. It's statistically true. These are the, all these stats are 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 in the book. Um, and, and, there's, and they're sad stats, right? Mm. This is what I mean when I say that the other talk is, is our talk to try to keep justice and equity as, as a potential to survive in our country. Because right now, um, we're not doing our part to help that reality come to light. So, Brendan Kiley, um, white privilege... If it, I mean, if it feels like, as you mentioned, like some... It feels like this terrible thing that I should f- feel guilty for, but I also like just being white means I live with white privilege. Is that right? Like there, like th- this. There's nothing I can do, yeah. even even if I, even if I, even if I'm not racist. I don't want to be racist. I exist as a white person, therefore I'm doing harm to other people. Help me well, think through this. I- yeah, sure. Right. So I think uh, I, I, I also hesitate to, to go that far. I think, I, I think in the kind of climate we live in right now, people like shorthand and punchy phrases. And I think it's, I think a, a conversation about racism and privilege uh, demands our patience and, and understanding of nuance. So I, so I appreciate your question because I think often when we talk about privilege, you can hear people say something in in, in the way that you described it, that it, it, you know, I'm white, therefore I cause harm. I I don't think that's exactly what I, how I would describe it. What I would describe it maybe in another way like this. Yes. uh, Being white means that I have privilege. I, I, I do think that's true. I have, I have privilege as I've described so far in our conversation. Um, should I feel bad about that? Well, I, I, I think maybe to some degree, yes. If I'm someone who wants to believe in equity and, and fairness and justice and, and, and you know, let all human beings uh, have their dignity. But, but, I, but I don't know if I should think about it in terms of it's all my fault. Um, because these are, these are problems that have existed for, for such a long time and have evolved over such a long time that, as I say in the book, I think... In, in many of the stories that I share, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and, and so I, I think becoming more aware of it can help me begin to, um, to operate in a way in which I, I'm doing a better job in some of these situations. I'm, I'm more consciously not causing harm. It, I, I don't think people, I, I want to believe that, that uh, and the the statistic that I uh, mentioned in the book is that seventy one percent of white Americans think that racism is a problem in America. Um, people understand and know that's the case. They don't want to be a part of that, and therefore finding a language to make sure that we're more conscious in our interactions with folks of color, um, black folks, indigenous folks, but also that we um, find that language of, of of racial identity to empower us. To feel like we have a, a a a place, a role in these conversations of equity and social justice in our communities, I, I think actually means that um, yes, being white means we have privilege, but if we engage in these conversations with a little bit less defensiveness and a more willingness to say, I may have done something wrong in the past, I may not, I don't know, how can I help more? I, I think we can we can get around the trap of feeling like all I can ever do is cause harm because that's that's not going to get us anywhere. And I think we I think it's a dangerous um, uh, trap of uh, of, um, you know, enabling inaction when what we need right now is action. I'm speaking with Brendan Kiley. He is a New York Times bestselling author of books for young readers, including All American Boys, which he co-wrote with Jason Reynolds. And his most recent book is a bit of a departure. It's nonfiction. It's partly memoir. It's called The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege. Brendan, I appreciate the way that you are extremely honest to the point of inducing cringes at times as you kind of revisit some of the moments from your life 
looking at them through the lens of this new understanding, um, mm-hmm. you know, through ad- adding on to it the layer of your whiteness to kind mm-hmm. of piece apart like ha- ha- what that meant to the situation. A lot of us have t- did things in our youth that were like, Ugh, I wouldn't want to have to tell the whole world that I did this thing that in hindsight was really <laughs> stupid or really entitled of me. Um, but right. there is this one story that um, that you talk about in the book that you actually think about a lot now. Um, and I'd love to have you tell it. It's it's about how you the time you got pulled over speeding with a bunch of friends in your family's van. Yeah, thanks. I, I, and I, I, I really I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the way that you've um, you've you've asked that question because that is really part of the, the the reason for writing the book is to is to revisit stories and ask myself how can I tell this story in a new way that includes me thinking about what it means to be a white person because for most of my life I've told my stories as well here's Brendan the buffoon or you know here's Brendan who at least imagined himself to be heroic in this moment who knows what he really was but you know yeah or even just and I and I appreciated this because it's more charitable to you just the sort of like can you believe what I got away with as a kid like I stole well, strawberry right. nesquake for this girl over and over again like what right. an amazing thing or I got away with right. speeding and you know that kind of thing right. Right, exactly, exactly, which is what we do, and 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 that's all normal and natural, and 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 and, and nothing we shouldn't continue to do. And I want to challenge those of us who are white to also think about how we can um, think about these moments and include our whiteness. And the example that I that you, you're asking me to share, I think, is a is a good one because um, it, it it asked me again to, to to sort of contrast things a little bit with uh, with Jason, and I, and I think that's okay for the for the point of clarifying this for your listeners. So. Um, uh, when I was, <laughs> when I was 17, I finally got my license and I had like a little chip on my shoulder because I was, you know, the last of all my friends to get my license. So I was like, yeah, finally it's my turn to drive. And I was all excited. And, and one night, um, I'm bombing down route one South, uh, near where I, where I grew up and, uh, outside of Boston. And I'm, I'm driving this minivan full of white boys like me. And, um, and we're, uh, we're, we're blasting down the highway. And, and I don't realize that I go through a, what's a speed trap where the speed limit drops 10 miles, uh, per hour. And so as I go through the speed trap, I'm actually going 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. Um, that's pretty reckless. It's absolutely stupid and dangerous. And, you know, I, I, I share the story just to say, you know, these are things that teens do. And it's, it's terrifying now to think about that as a father, <laughs> but I, um, but I, but I, you know, I'm, I'm tearing down the highway and, and, and uh, the lights flash behind me, the sirens go. Um, and, uh, and I'm nervous, of course, because it's the first time that I've, I've had a, a police car pulling up behind me. Now, pause for one second, because this is precisely the situation um, in, in which so many black families, indigenous families, families of color uh, have the talk with their children. Often it's about what to do when you get pulled over by the police. It's grounded in a, in a direct fear for one's child's life. Um, and that's not to demonize law enforcement is to recognize the unfortunate reality of how many young people in particular, but people of color in general and black people and indigenous people have been met with extreme violence uh, and all too often death in these interactions. So they're having these in, in deeply serious conversations with their children about this. Now, because my family never had that kind of a conversation with me, when the lights flash, the sirens go, yeah, I'm nervous. Of course I'm nervous. I'm, you know, I get caught doing something wrong. We're all nervous when that happens, right? But I'm not nervous for my life. And so my nerves are getting the better of me. And what do I do? I floor it. I'm tearing down the highway, high-speed chase, ridiculous. My friends are like, Brendan, pull over, pull over. I don't know where it's safe to pull over. I'm shouting back. This is, you know, this is teens, right? I, I, I pull into a parking lot, uh, an empty parking lot for a restaurant. I take my sweet time pulling into a parking space. I mean, this is just ridiculous. I can only imagine what the police officer was thinking. He knocks on the door. He asks for license and registration. I give it to him, et cetera. The, you know, he asked me to get out of the car, asked if I'd been drinking alcohol. No, I had not been smoking marijuana. No, I had not been asking me why I'm going over the speed limit. And I go into this sob story, basically, because I can. Oh, officer, we were trying to play mini golf. It just wasn't working out. And then we're supposed to go get ice cream. And everybody's just yelling in the back of the car. You know, I'm going on and on. This officer just sees this 17-year-old boy whose knees are knocking like a seven-year-old boy, you know, going to make a little puddle between his sneakers. He's so nervous. 
Um, and I tell the story because, I mean, obviously people know where this is going, that I did not get a ticket and I didn't even get a written warning, but that's not why I tell the story. I, I really tell the story because of what happened next. And as I often share this uh, story with, with young people, I, uh, the way I explain this is that every time I have to say this next line, it's like a little fish hook in my gut that just tugs and tugs and tugs to remind me what white privilege is in America. Because the police officer said to me, go home, be safe, and keep your friends safe. And the reason why that line in some ways kind of haunts me to this day is because what I recognize is how the police officer looked at me with compassion, uh, probably some pity, um, but certainly saw me as a human being uh, worthy of another chance. And, uh, and I'm so grateful for that. I, 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 I wish that for many more people than just me. And I recognize that in that moment, um, because he granted me that dignity, I have never made that mistake again. I don't want to endanger anybody's life on the road. That's absurd uh, and, and you know reckless behavior. Um, but thinking about how he saw me in that moment, it's um, impossible for me not to think about this with regard to white privilege. Because Jason Reynolds, who I've you know, spoken about before now in, in our interview. He's the uh, um, he's the other author. He, you actually went on to co-write a book with him, All American Boys. But at the time, I, this was he was the author that the two of you had your first novels, and you were the publisher sent you out together on book tour. Yeah, thank you, thank you for clarifying that for everyone. And 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 he's black and I'm white. And and we, um, what's important to for people to understand is that this was just you know right before you know, the pandemic, Jason was telling me a story as an adult, he and his brother were getting pulled over by the police. Um, and to this day, his hands still shake while he's holding the steering wheel as the police officer makes the walk from the car to his car, um, because he honestly doesn't know if it's going to be his last breath. And that's, it, 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 for me to hear that as a white person, and to know that I do not have that same fear when the police officer is walking to my door is exactly why I have to think about what it means to have white privilege in America. It's not, this is not about demonizing the police at all. It's, that's not our intention in, in our book, All American Boys, where we talk about a moment uh, like this uh, that involves two teens. Um, and it's not what I'm, I mean, I have law enforcement in my family. I love them very much. And I recognize how difficult their, jo their job is. But it is incumbent upon me as somebody who cares about the well-being of, of all of us in this country to think more clearly about what it means then to have these advantages that I didn't create, that I don't wish for, and I don't want. But I still think I have to do something about that, um, that inequity that exists for us between me and Jason, uh, two guys who are deeply close friends who love each other, and yet um, he's terrified if he gets pulled over and I'm not. Um, so you wrote you wrote this book, which is something you can do because you have a platform. Um, but mm -hmm. but what's a you know what's the fourteen year old white kid reading this book supposed to do? So this is something that I find so interesting. So I've I've had the great uh, fortune to travel around the country. I've been able to talk it to to young people in schools in Anchorage, Alaska, in Sacramento, California, Orlando, Florida, Portland, Maine, so many points in between, right? And everywhere I go. Um, there are so many young people, including young white people, uh, who essentially are saying, I want to learn more so that I can do more. And I, and I'm, I'm going to answer your question, but I want people to really recognize how, how really powerful and meaning, meaningful this is to me, because part of the reason why I wrote this book is I want to honor the spirit of all those young people out there who are saying, um, you know, I can see that the world is broken out there and I want to be a part of solution to helping fix it in some way. Our young folks are clamoring for more language and support and tools to do this, right? We've seen the young people in our country mar marching for, uh, for more gun safety, not you know, getting rid of the second amendment. Let's not blow this out of proportion and be hyperbolic for no reason. They're just asking for safety for their own lives, for their friends' lives, for their generation's lives, right? Young people are asking and, and, and for, for racial justice in the same way. 
We saw images last summer after the murder of George Floyd of young people and young white people kind of holding their parents and grandparents by the hands and dragging them through the streets behind them to saying, we have to be here. I, we, we owe it to the young people to try to find the language to meet them where they already are. That instinct for justice and fairness is in them. And I think um, if we don't at least attempt, right, then, then we're failing them. And I don't want to do that as a father, as an educator, and as a, a community member here you know, in, in my own neighborhood. Mm. Um, now, to the point of your question, though, what can young folks do? In the book, you know, I'm uh, I'm sharing all of these stories. I'm connecting them to laws and, and, and history and also to contemporary events and statistics. Um, but I also, the book is sort of driving at, so what can we do? Don't, don't just depress us, Brendan. What can we do? <laughs> right. And, um, and especially as someone who cares and, and, and works with uh, young people, I think it's absolutely essential to, to have hope. Um, first of all, because, um, Think about all the people who have come before us who acted because they believed in, uh, uh, that, the, that the future could, be, could possibly be better. Think about the people who were abolitionists. Think about the white families who opened up their homes to the Underground Railroad. Think about the people who took a risk to get involved in, um, in government and, and try to reimagine a new America during reconstruction before it was dismantled so quickly. Think about the people who were marching in the streets um, in, in Selma across the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge. They believed that a better future was possible. And I feel like how dare I not have hope because of all the hope that came before me. We owe it to our young kids to give that kind of hope as well. And so for me, the way that I begin this is, I think we all too often overlook the first step of action. And the first step of action is becoming better listeners. It's really true. We cannot skip past the part of listening to the stories that people have already been sharing. And I'll give you one, for instance, that is in the book. I was visiting a school outside of Portland, Maine, and um, it's a mostly white school. And there was a young um, black girl who asked a question. Um, uh, we were talking about the demographic shifts in our country and how at, at basically as of today uh, in K through 12 public schools in America, white kids are for the first time a minority, a majority minority. Um, and she asked, is becoming a minority what it will take for you all, she was saying, pointing to, to me as, as, as a white person, to finally empathize with the stories of racism that people like me have been sharing and sharing and sharing. And that question broke my heart because my gosh, is that really what it'll take for us to actually sit in her shoes for real, as opposed to just listening to her stories and choosing to believe them? I think real action begins with listening and choosing to not be defensive, but choosing instead to believe the stories that folks of color are sharing and have been sharing. Mm, so, um, so hold on. So choosing to not be defensive. So, yeah. Okay, so this is about someone saying, this is how, is, is this where someone comes to you and says, the thing you said or the way you treated me in this case was harmful? And you, instead of saying, well, I didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry you were offended, but I really, I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings when I used that word. Um, right, right. You can't, you shouldn't try to explain yourself. You just... You just what? Just do you just listen? Well, just apologize? Well, I mean, I'm 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 smiling because today uh, happens to also be that my, my wife and I are celebrating our 10th year anniversary. <laughs> and I and I think about um, if my wife is, is coming up to me to, to say, you know, this thing you said uh, really hurt me. Um, I just don't think we would be in a good place in our marriage if I essentially was like, I'm sorry you feel that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's, why would I do that? Why, why would I, why would I put the burden back on her? Um, that's not a, that's not a, a way to, to continue to form a meaningful relationship together. I think it's important for me to listen and say, you know, what, what did I do? I'm, I might not have been aware of this. I might not have wanted to, but what did I do? What did I say? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm truthfully sorry. How can I, how can I learn more as, as the young people I've talked to keep saying, how can I learn more so I can do more and do better? I, 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 I do think it's actually 
quite simple. <laughs> hmm. That's what I mean by not being defensive, right? And I, I use some examples in the book too. I, I do some some kind of case studies about this. And um, I, I think this is true in general. I, I, I would like to try to be a better listener in that way in so many of my interactions with people. Um, you know, it, 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 I think it would help me be a better partner in, 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 as a coworker, be a, be a better partner as a, <laughs> as a parent as well. <laughs> and, um, and I, and I certainly think it's very true in the case of talking about racism, um, because I think it's natural, right? We white folks, especially those of us who, who think racism is wrong. We don't want to even begin to imagine ourselves as someone who may have hurt somebody in conversation or someone whose silence may have hurted some hurt someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me to listen and hear someone say, Hey, Brendan, you know, when you said this, um, at the, at the faculty meeting, um, I, I taught at a high school for 10 years in, in New York city. Um, you know, it, it really hurt me. Uh, you weren't thinking about all of the students of color in the class when you said that, my gosh, if I'm defensive and say, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to, how can that colleague trust that I'll, even be open to criticism the next time she wants to bring something up. Mm. But if I take the, the the chance to say, I'm sorry. Okay. What else? Uh, what else should I know? I'm really, I, I, I'm really sorry. That opens up the door for me to be the better teacher that I actually want to be. So listen, listen better, listen more. That's, that's the first call to action. Is there a follow-up though? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I uh, in, in the books, right? So as I, as I said, the progression is leading us. And so then as we get into the, the sort of final third of the book, there are a number of different chapters about, you know, uh, increasing our listening skills and, and, and becoming better listeners. And it's all driving toward action. And by way of action, I, I try to use many examples of what young people are, are doing out there today. Um, the way that they're the way that they're connecting with each other over social media, so that they can, um, so that if there are a handful of students in a school in Sacramento that want to um, be public about um, about uh, you know racial justice in their school, um, and they might feel kind of isolated and alone. They can connect with students in Iowa or Florida or Massachusetts or wherever, and they can all kind of um, act together in a way that makes them feel more connected because truthfully, they are more connected. Um, I, I, I use examples of, of um, some students in a school in Brooklyn that took a real risk um, and, and, and they had a protest in the lobby of their school to, to demand um, that their curriculum might change. And, uh, uh, and they did, they got it to change. And I, I, I think it's important for us to think a little bit about how um, um, sometimes the big picture looks so scary. Like when we see news stories about, say, uh, the murder of George Floyd, and we see people marching in the street, and we hear, say, newscasters talking about uh, systemic racism, and it, the, the problem feels so big that you don't even know where to where to start and how to participate. But what I always try to share with young people is that um, uh, meaningful action takes place right in our own communities. And um, we don't have to try to get out there and, and save the world. Maybe what we can do is just try to build uh, networks within our own local communities. And that's where real action can take place, um, no matter where we are, right? And, 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 and one, one thing I think that's really important for people to recognize, and especially young people, is that um, when we're talking about action, we have to also be really careful to let young people know in particular that we we might not get what we want <laughs> um, right away. And I, I share a story in, in the book that is, is fun to share because um, my, my brother and I like to tease each other. That's basically the whole basis of our relationship. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and he's always teasing me that like, I need to do a better job, including a, a character like him in my, in my novels, et cetera. So finally, I actually have the real character, my brother <laughs> mentioned in, in the, in the book here. And in it, it's a, it's about a, a, the high school we both went to. And when I was a senior in this high school, we, uh, uh, some friends and I tried to start a, a social justice club called the Association of Social Consciousness Task with a C. And, um, <laughs> and we wanted to set up this week of awareness in the school and, um, and have all these speakers come in and nobody would go to classes for a week and, and blah, 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 blah. And we tried really hard, but nothing came of it. And we, by the end of the school year, certainly myself and, and, and some of my friends, we felt a little bit like failures. Like, you know what? 
we tried so hard to get this to get people to want to talk about racism in our in in our community and school and, and prioritize us in the school and it didn't happen man we stink we failed um i even boycotted the yearbook picture because i was pouting so much and, and what we didn't know what we didn't know is that we had inspired some of the teachers in the school to pick up the ball the following year and what we didn't know is that they worked and continued to work really hard for the next couple of years um, so that when my younger brother was uh, in this same high school, they started a day of awareness. And then they had a few days of, a day of, of awareness. So that by the time my younger brother was a senior in high school, he calls me up and he says, hey, B, you know that uh, week of awareness thing you, you guys wanted to start? Well, guess what? Now I got to go to it, man. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's pretty remarkable. You know, you plant a seed and you never really, you might not be there to see to watch what grows, but you've planted the seed. And that's the kind of action that I think we can, we can, we can share with young people because that's what hope I think really is about. It's not about wishing for something to be, it's about participating in what you want to be. <laughs> and, um, and, and that's the kind of action that, I, that I'm talking about in, in, in the book is that the small things we can do in our local communities that will hopefully have ripple effects in, in all of our lives down the road. How do parents start this conversation? And at what age should they start having the other talk about white privilege? So I, I think all I think most parents understand that our children are are watching us and observing us from a very young age. I often share the story of the moment uh, our son was born, he was having trouble breathing. And uh, you know, the doctor rushed him over to the to the warming station. And I just started talking to, with him. I was just talking with him and talking with him. And uh, the doctor turned to me and said, keep, keep talking with him. It's, it seems to be helping. And as I was saying, I love you, I love you. We're going to do all these things together. You know, um, he twisted his tiny little trunk, reached out his hands, and his hands grabbed my pinky finger and, and held on. And I think about that moment all the time because I think about how our, our children are, are witnessing and watching us and listening to us from the first moments they're born. So I would argue that we begin our versions of the other talk as soon as possible when they are so young. And how we do that is maybe a little bit about how my wife and I will just speak more consciously and maybe more bravely about race and racism than we have before. And he can witness and watch that. Maybe my wife and I, while he's around, can be very conscious about making sure that all the children's books we have in our, you know, on our bookshelf for him are not just reflections of himself, but reflections of the world around him. Um, and all the kinds of kids that will be his classmates and colleagues and coworkers and friends in the years to come. Um, maybe when he's getting older, we have conversations that are about fairness and bullying which are things that young kids really can grapple with. And we can let that kind of conversation evolve, evolve um, to begin to incorporate more of the nuances of race so that the foundations are already there and we're just adding on to it and adding on to it. So that by the time he's you know, a, a middle schooler or, or, or so, we can begin to have some of the more sophisticated conversations about institutional and systemic racism that again, aren't his fault, but that he has an opportunity to participate in dismantling so that we can live in a fairer society for all. Brendan Kiley is a New York Times bestselling author of books including All American Boys, which he wrote with Jason Reynolds. And his most recent book is a nonfiction book with some memoir woven in. It's called The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege. Brendan, thank you for your time today and for sharing your story so um, so openly with us. I appreciate it. Julie, thanks so much for having me on. I, I, I really just don't take any opportunity like this for granted. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. Thanks so much. Hi there, it's Julie again. We've got one more interview for you in this special curated episode from the Top of Mind Archive. If you want more of our past conversations from our daily live radio show days, you can find all of them at byuradio.org slash topofmind. We will have a brand new episode for you of the Top of Mind podcast next Monday right here in the feed. Be sure to like and rate us while you're there so other people can find us. Thanks. It's great to have you with us today for Top of Mind. There is nothing quite like fresh flowers to brighten a room. They are an absolute necessity for celebrations like weddings. But what do you do with them after the big event? 
Eleanor Love started a program in medical school to harvest those flowers and to give them to patients in the hospital where she worked. Love is a resident physician at Riverside Medical Center in Virginia, and her organization is called The Simple Sunflower. We read about it recently in The Washington Post and decided to get her on the line. Dr. Love, thanks for your time. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. How did you get the idea for this in the first place? There were a lot of things that inspired my interest in starting this organization, but at the forefront was my interactions that I had with patients on a very personal level while I was a medical student in Virginia. Um, And that was the first thing that kind of got me thinking about how I could contribute to their care um, when I didn't have the full medical knowledge of a um, fully trained doctor since I was in medical school at that time. So I decided to combine my love for patient care with my love for gardening and flowers that I've always had as a hobby and a passion throughout my life and um, thought about how I could repurpose fresh flowers from local weddings and events the flowers that normally get discarded that I knew would bring joy to patients in the hospital who I was caring for on a day-to-day basis. So you, uh, what, started approaching wedding planners or uh, like stalking weddings at local hotels <laughs> and like asking if you could take the flowers? simple emails. Hmm. And I reached out to different florists, different wedding venues in the hmm. area and asked what they normally do with the flowers after the um, event. And luckily, I didn't invent this concept. It exists in other cities. And so I was able to kind of think about how flowers were being re-gifted in other contexts, in other areas of the nation, Hmm. and kind of bring that model to my own city and to my own hospital. Okay. So what's the process today? How how do you get the flowers and what do you do with them? We work closely with our um, community partners in the the area. Um, That includes the wedding florists, the wedding venues, And whenever they have a event that has extra flowers that they would like to donate, um, they they reach out to us and we work with them to send volunteers following the wedding or the event to pick up the flowers, bring them back to the hospital, create bouquets out of the flowers that will go out to our patients. And then we work with trained hospital volunteers to distribute those bouquets to patients in the hospital the following day. Hmm. Do the brides and grooms usually know that their flowers are going to this purpose? Absolutely. So we work closely with the um, event planners at the venues who are in touch with the brides and the grooms. So it is thanks to the brides and the grooms who choose to donate their flowers to us that we are able to use those flowers and um, give them a second life. And you collect them and then sort of reassemble them uh, into vases or uh, so it's not just like you're taking the centerpieces off wedding tables and like dropping them in hotel rooms. I mean, in hospital rooms. Right. We we collect the flowers that are often part of the centerpieces mm. and we deconstruct the arrangements and recreate small bouquets that will fit on a bedside table for our patients. We can often take six centerpieces and create upwards of 30 bouquets for our patients and each bouquet goes to an individual patient. And who are the patients? How do you decide who receives them? We distribute our flowers throughout the hospital. Um, They go to any floor of the hospital that can accept flowers. Um, And we don't don't pre-select patients. It's just a gift that we bring to any patient who happens to be on the floor that we're delivering the the flowers at that time. Mm. So they've gone everywhere from patients recovering from surgery to patients receiving palliative care to new mothers who have just given birth. And even more recently, they've gone to um, patients who are recovering from COVID as well. Hmm. Have you been in the room? Have you delivered any of these bouquets? I just wonder what the response is from the patient. Yes, um, that's often the most meaningful part of the work, I think. Um, I really enjoy being able to bring this unexpected gift to our patients. And it helps me connect with patients on a deeper level. um, And it helps personalize the experience that they have in the hospital. Um, We don't have to talk about their treatment or their diagnosis. We can just talk about the flowers. And often I hear a little bit about the person's individual um, interests. And um, I love it when a patient who I'm speaking with will talk about their experience as a gardener or their love of flowers themselves. So I, I do really enjoy that part. What is behind the name for your organization? You call it the Simple Sunflower. Mm hmm. I was inspired to name it the simple sunflower because, well, one, I think sunflowers evoke a sense of happiness, brightness, and hope. 
And so I felt like it was a very fitting symbol of the of our mission. And I decided to put the word simple in front because so many things are complicated in the healthcare world that I didn't want this project or this organization to be one more, one more aspect of complexity. Um, it has a very simple meaning, a very simple mission. And so I decided to name it the Simple Sunflower to remind people who work with us and people who receive our flowers that, um, that it's really uh, not a complicated process. And then finally, sunflowers are one of my favorite personal flowers. So mm. it seemed fitting. I love how resilient sunflowers are. They can grow out of cracks in sidewalks. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Exactly. <laughs> um, what was the process like convincing the higher ups at the hospital uh, and your supervisors to let you uh, start this project up? I'm so lucky that I've had the support of our leadership from the first day that we started. Um, I approached d different folks who... Um, who needed to approve our process um, from the very beginning, explaining my idea and um, brainstorming with them how we could make it happen. So I feel like it's been a team effort, not only among me and the other um, leaders of our community in the hospital, but also among the volunteers who have banded together and helped support our mission. Because of course, none of this would be possible without the buy-in of our volunteers and the leaders in the hospital. So I feel very lucky to have been surrounded by a very supportive community and continue to continue to be surrounded by that community that believes in our mission and is willing to pitch in to make it happen. And how has the pandemic effect affected your project? Good question. We receive a lot of our bouquets and a lot of our flowers from weddings. So during the height of the pandemic, of course, there were hardly any weddings happening. So we did have a significant decline in the floral donations that we were receiving. However, we used that time to, to grow our organization um, from the inside out and really strengthen our, our leadership team and work kind of towards uh, growth from an organizational standpoint so that when weddings returned and our source of flowers returned, we were actually much stronger. So I'm, I'm glad that we had that opportunity um, even though we weren't distributing as many flowers to our patients at that time, um, it enabled us to come back stronger. Eleanor Love is a medical resident at Riverside Medical Center in Virginia, founder of The Simple Sunflower. Thanks for telling us a bit about your work today. Thanks for having me. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It's been great having you with us for this curated bonus episode of Top of Mind from our archive. You can listen to seven years worth of our daily live radio interviews online at byuradio.org slash topofmind. Coming up Monday on an all-new episode of Top of Mind. It was just a real moment of saying to myself, I can't do what I've done before. I am getting old. Pretty much everybody dreads aging. But did you know people are often at their happiest in their 80s and 90s? So what gives? If we had a different attitude about aging... Would getting older be a better experience all around? That's next week on an all-new episode of Top of Mind. So come back soon to feel the power of thinking again.